Last Sunday, uh, Ann and I were in Edmond, Oklahoma, where I had the joy of baptizing my uh, second grandchild out there, Clay's sister, Kari, her uh, second child, a daughter, was baptized. So that's two out of four that I've baptized so far in Oklahoma. Uh, although we miss being here at Woodmont, one of the amazing things about the modern time and technology is we got to watch and join you on live stream. So that's a, a great addition that we have in the life of the church today. But you have just heard a passage of scripture from what we call the word of God, speaking to us through what Jesus had to say in one of his parables. Do you think that that word has the power to change human lives? There can be no doubt about it. And this particular passage the parable of the rich man and Lazarus was the spark that set off a great revolution in the life of a young German minister and doctor and literary figure and an outstanding musician, causing him to give up all those careers in Germany and to go to the primeval forest of equatorial Africa and spend the rest of his life establishing a hospital there. His name was Albert Schweitzer. Don't know how many of you who are younger have ever heard of him, but if you haven't, I would certainly encourage you to read one of his books where he talks about his faith and how this particular passage changed his life. He became one of the outstanding missionaries of the 20th century. But when he read this passage about the rich man and Lazarus, or dives and Lazarus, as we come to call it, Schweitzer was convinced that Africa was the beggar lying at Europe's doorstep. And it so changed his life that he walked away from a successful medical career as a doctor in Germany and as a writer, a literary figure, and as a talented musician, even as a Lutheran minister, for that was a strong church in Germany. And he went to Lamborghini to start a hospital. And in the opening paragraph of his book, On the Edge of the Primeval Forest, Schweitzer describes in the following words what happened. I had read about the physical miseries of the natives in the virgin forests. I'd heard about them from missionaries, and the more I thought about it, the stranger it seemed to me that we Europeans trouble ourselves so little about the great humanitarian need that offers itself to us in far off lands. The parable of Dives and Lazarus seemed to me to have been spoken directly of us. We are dives, for through the advances of medical science, we now know a great deal about diseases and pain and have innumerable means of fighting them and even curing them. Yet we take as a matter of course, we take for granted the incalculable advantages 
which this new knowledge has given us. But out there in the colonies in Africa sits Lazarus, the African folk, who suffer from the same illnesses and pains that we do, as much, maybe even more than we do, and they have absolutely no means of fighting those diseases. And just as dives sinned against the poor man lying at his gate because he never thought about him, never put himself in his place, uh, he let his heart and his conscience tell him what he ought to do. And so we too sin in the same way by ignoring the beggar lying at our gates and letting our conscience be dull and, and insensitive to their need. Could we say the same thing about us and about America today? Could we say that we are dives because we are so blessed compared to the rest of the world? And that Lazarus could be the millions of people who are suffering in places like Africa and India and South America and so many of the Middle East and refugee camps in so many, many places in the world. Think about that as we look a little more closely at this, this parable. It's been said that this parable is a drama in two scenes. In scene number one, we meet the two major characters. First, there is the rich man who we call dives, which is the Latin word for rich. The passage clearly describes the luxury in which he lived. He was richly clothed in fine purple and linen. He was richly fed, he ate sumptuously every day. In a day like our own, when the masses of the common people are lucky to have meat maybe once a day, he had it probably every day uh, and probably three meals a day. In fact, more than just eating well, the word for, for feasting in this passage really means gluttony or overeating. We're told he was also richly housed for the fact that Lazarus was lying at his gate implies that he must have lived in what would have been a mansion in that time. But more than just wealth, this rich man represents laziness, corruption, and self-indulgence. The second major character that we meet in this parable is a poor beggar named Lazarus. And did you know this is the only time in any of his parables that Jesus gave a name to one of the characters telling us his name was Lazarus? The name Lazarus means God is my help. Lazarus was a poor man covered with sores, we are told, and so weak and so helpless that he couldn't even fend off the dogs that would come to lick his sores. The scriptures tell us that Lazarus lay at the gate, hoping to be fed by just the crumbs from Dive's table. Now, when you think of crumbs from the table, you have a little different understanding than what it meant back then. For us, crumbs are those little things that fall on our napkin or our lap. But back in those days, when they didn't eat with knives and forks, uh, spoons like we do, uh, they would eat with their hands. 
And so they would have at every place at the table a big loaf of bread or chunk of bread so that after the people ate the meat and their faces got all messed up, they would tear off a chunk of bread and wipe their mouth and then they just tossed the chunk of bread away. And it was that chunk of bread that the poor man was hoping that he could get. This also relates, you might call it a story Jesus tells about the woman that wanted just the crumbs from the table that the master fed to the dogs. We're talking about more than just little crumbs. We're talking about bigger pieces of food. Such is the situation that we find in this parable in scene number one, a scene that takes place here on earth. Then the scene abruptly changes and scene number two takes us beyond this world into the world that is to come. The poor man, we are told, dies and he is carried by the angels to Abraham, his bosom. The rich man, we're told, also dies and he is buried and ends up in Hades, being in torment as he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham resting in the bosom of Abraham. Obviously, in this second scene, their situations are reversed. Lazarus is in glory, resting in the bosom of Abraham, which is a descriptive phrase we find more than once in the Bible that is really trying to describe the joy of heaven, the greatest bliss of paradise. And dies, the rich man is now in torment in hell. Now it was a common Jewish belief back then, even an early Christian belief, that paradise and hell or heaven and hell were in sight of each other. And so the sight of those in paradise would increase the misery of those who are in hell. And the sight of those suffering in hell would enhance the joy of those who were in heaven. Now that's kind of a grim picture as far as I'm concerned, but it was a common belief back in that time. In this scene, scene number two, we get the message, the main message of the parable, and that is that inequalities on earth are amended and corrected in heaven. Lowliness is rewarded and the self-indulgent pride is rebuked and punished. This contrast between scene one and scene two might remind us of the saying of Jesus when he said, and so the first shall be last and the last shall be first. We all know that selfishness creates a hell for us here on earth. So why would it not bring us a greater hell in the life that is to come? But what caused this great reversal? What was the sin of the rich man dives. It wasn't because he was rich and lived in luxury. Jesus never condemned anywhere in the Bible wealth and possessions. It wasn't because he got his wealth dishonestly because we're not told that. It wasn't even because he was a glutton overeating every day. Now that may be a sin in itself, but I don't believe it's a great enough sin to send somebody to hell. 
it wasn't even that Dives had abused Lazarus, for he had never had Lazarus beaten and removed from his gate. He had no objection to his begging and getting the crumbs from his table. Some people would, you know. They'd have all the vagrants and beggars thrown in jail if they could. But Dives wasn't deliberately cruel to Lazarus. So what was his great sin? What had Dives done that caused him to end up in the torments of hell, begging for just a drop of cold water on the tip of his tongue in order to ease his thirst? You know, it wasn't what Dives did that was so bad, but it was what he didn't do. The sin of Dives was that he never noticed Lazarus. He just accepted him lying there at his gate as a part of the landscape. He thought it was natural and inevitable that Lazarus should be in pain and hunger while he wallowed in luxury. And if we're honest, isn't that the way many affluent people are today in our world? We're blessed. We have more food than we will ever need. That's why most of us are overweight. We see on our television screens the millions of people around the world that are dying of starvation every day. We see those pictures and we get up and we go to the kitchen to get another snack. We hear so much that we actually honestly get tired of seeing all those pictures that are so disturbing. We've just accepted it as a part of life the way it is the way things are in the world. Nobody ever promised us that it would be different. We'll even try to explain it away to appease our guilty consciences. Sure, we're grateful for our blessings and our prosperity, but everybody can't be rich. Somebody's got to be poor. Didn't Jesus even say, you'll always have the poor with you? Sometimes we even go a little further in our self-justification, we say, well, they deserve their situation. They don't ever try to help themselves. They could be better off if they want to. They're just looking for a free handout, free lunches. And so we rationalize and we justify the Lazaruses of the world. We'll see their pictures on television, like I said, and when they come on, we'll take a break and go get something else to eat. In fact, we'd probably like to get all those pictures off our TV sets if we could and out of the papers because those pictures ruin our appetite. There are many, many funds in our world today that want to feed the hungry and end starvation and care for the poor. We know there are so many of them and we know we can't give to all of them so we really just don't give to any of them. And the strangest thing is that here we are sitting in church, worshiping Jesus, the same Jesus who told us this story about Dives and Lazarus, and the fact that the sin of Dives was that he could look on the world's suffering and need and feel no guilt, feel no compassion in his heart. He looked upon his fellow human beings in hunger and pain and didn't do anything about it. Jesus holds up a mirror. Scripture holds up a mirror in which we are to see ourselves. 
but often we don't because we look away when that mirror is held up. Do you ever wonder what it is that influences our deeper spirituality and the way we really think and feel and believe? Since you're listening to me this morning, let me share with you one example of, of what it is that has affected my thinking and my spirituality, particularly when it comes to this story of Dives and Lazarus. More than 50 years ago when I was in seminary, I, I heard a poem and I got a copy of it that spoke to me in such a strong way. And the words to this poem still echo in my mind today whenever I see any of the homeless or hungry uh, masses of our world today. The poem was entitled, Listen, Christian. And it said, listen, Christian, I was hungry and you formed a humanities club and discussed my hunger. Thank you. Listen, Christian, I was imprisoned and you crept off quietly to your chapel in the cellar and prayed for my release. Listen, Christian, I was naked and in your mind you debated my morality of my appearance. I was sick and you knelt and thanked God for your health. I was homeless <clears throat> and you preached to me of the spiritual shelter of the love of God. I was lonely and you left me alone to pray for me. You seem so holy, so close to God, but I'm still very hungry and lonely and cold. Thank you. Such is the scene in our world still today. Dives lives in a palace, richly clothed, well-fed, and Lazarus lies at his gate, begging for just the crumbs that fall from his table, while the dogs come and lick his sores. We'll play the role of Dives. Let somebody else be Lazarus. But then suddenly the scene changes to the next world. What role do we want then? Yes, I think the Bible does change people's lives when they take it seriously. This particular parable of the rich man and Lazarus certainly transformed the life of a great man named Albert Schweitzer. And I can't help but wonder, as we hear it again today, what kind of effect it might have on us.